Well, good evening. And thank you for being here tonight. When I'm speaking before a group of people, it is usually in a classroom or a laboratory. My listeners tend to be somewhere between 18 to 22 years old. I'm usually talking about acid-base reactions or intermolecular forces or how to plot data on a graph. I teach chemistry at Mount Mercy University, so these things come naturally and easily for me. But tonight's topic does not come so easily. Although suffering is a common life experience for all of us, talking about suffering is difficult and painful and deeply personal, and we usually avoid it. Not only do we avoid talking about suffering, we often do what we can to avoid suffering altogether. When we look about us, we can see that we've become a society that is attempting to eliminate all suffering. Substance abuse, euthanasia, abortion, divorce. These are just some of our attempts to rid ourselves of any suffering, pain, or inconvenience. Tonight, I would like to talk with you about how, through my conversion to the Catholic Church, I came to see suffering in a very different light. I will briefly share with you my journey of faith and will focus on three specific periods where I experienced suffering. But first, I would like to qualify something for you before I go on. Tonight, I'll be talking about a certain type of suffering that I believe is common to all of us. It is not a suffering that is outwardly visible, although it can and often does produce outward signs. It's not the suffering of bodily illness, but instead, it is the suffering of the soul. I think the Blessed Mother's life is a good example of this kind of suffering. We can try to imagine the interior suffering that she experienced as she watched her son suffer in the last years of his life and then in his passion and in his death. We are not told that she suffered bodily, but we do know that Simeon prophesied that a sword would pierce her soul. So tonight, I will speak about this kind of interior Marian suffering that I now see is one of the greatest blessings in my life, but I did not always see it so. I grew up in a loving home, an only child to parents who thought they would be childless. My mother, herself an adult convert, was a non-practicing Catholic during my entire childhood. My father shunned all organized religion, but was the kindest man I have ever known. We did not attend any church during my youth, but my parents' belief in the importance of doing good and loving others shaped me profoundly. My earthly father's life, an example in particular, made my belief and acceptance of a loving Heavenly Father very natural and easy. Both of my parents have passed away, but the echoes of their living are with me still. I always remember having questions as a child that were never quite satisfactorily answered. Why am I here? How did we come into existence? 
How is the world made? Where will I go when I die? When I was a young girl, I attended church with my Southern Baptist neighbors, who always invited me to join them. When I was 14, I went forward at an altar call in this Southern Baptist church, giving my yes to God, and experienced a true and lasting conversion. Although I struggled as a young person without the religious guidance of my parents, by God's grace, I held fast to my faith. I am very grateful for my time in the Southern Baptist Church. As an undergraduate, I attended a United Methodist Church, and it was in this Methodist Church that I entered into the sacramental life, being baptized at the age of 20. I am again grateful for my time in the Methodist Church. In graduate school, I attended a non-denominational charismatic church. I was drawn to the joy and the life that I saw in the members of this church. I became deeply knitted in to this community life. We shared meals together, we studied the scriptures together, we prayed for each other. It was a wonderful place to grow in faith and in my love for God. At this non-denominational church, I met my husband, Brian. We were young, full of zeal. I look very different there. <laughs> um, we were full of zeal to share the message of the gospel with others. We planned to marry and become missionaries. 25 years ago, this past May, we married in a tiny church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our plans to do missionary work were put on hold for various reasons, one of which was that I soon was expecting our first child. Our son Joshua was born on a cold November night in 1992. I was full of hope for the future. After completing my graduate studies, now staying home full time to care for our son, I threw myself into motherhood. When Joshua was six months old, this picture, I noticed a change in his behavior. His body seemed tight and tense, and he grew fussy, was having difficulty nursing. People told me it was only new mother worries, but I had that gut feeling that something was very wrong. By the time Joshua was seven months old, we found ourselves sitting in a neurologist's office discussing the rapid decline of our son's life. Over the course of the previous month, he could no longer voluntarily move. He was crying off and on all day and night, not sleeping for more than about two hours at a time, and was now having problems, even drinking from a bottle. His body was rigid and tense. He startled at the slightest of sounds. He rarely smiled, and only at the craziest antics that my husband could muster. The utter anguish I felt at what my son was experiencing was intensified by the fact that I could do nothing to comfort him or ease his pain. Blood work was done, an MRI performed, and when Joshua was eight months old, we were informed that he had globoid cell leukodystrophy, commonly referred to as Crabbe's disease, and he would most likely not live past his first birthday. My husband, and I were tested and found to be carriers of Crabbe's disease, 
so that any subsequent children we had had a 25% chance of inheriting this horrific disease. There was no cure, and there was no treatment, and there was only death. And thoughts for the future were filled with fear. I thought at the time, God, where are you? How could you let this happen to our innocent son? We would go anywhere in the world for you and do anything that you want us to do. Is this your reward for our obedience? Is this how you repay us for our love for you? I knew all the scriptures, how our faith will be tried, how God causes all things to work for good, how God will never give us more than we can bear. But no scriptures, nothing in my spiritual understanding at the time could help this suffering make sense. If God gave me the suffering, I knew it could be to test me and try my faith. But why give the suffering to Joshua? And so I listened to those who offered some kind of hope in the middle of all of this despair. God has allowed the affliction only to show his glory by healing your son, they said. If you have enough faith, Joshua will be healed, they explained. So began a two-year struggle to muster up enough faith so that God would heal my son. To this end, I prayed and I read scriptures over and over again that I interpreted to say that God would heal Joshua. By his stripes, you are healed. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, or you can heal your son, and so on. Many people were praying for Joshua's healing. My husband and I even traveled quite a distance to attend a meeting of a well-known faith healer. He claimed to have healed many people by his prayers. Despite thousands of people at the event hoping to have the TV evangelist pray for them, I was determined to get up on the stage so that he would pray for Joshua. And somehow, I did. The faith healer prayed over Joshua and then called all children with disabilities to come forward. You can imagine the collective rush forward by these desperate parents. I left that night with hope that God would surely heal our son. But about a year later, when Joshua was two and a half years old and lay in his little coffin, dressed so sweetly in his new blue suit, all hope in his healing, all hope in God, and all hope for the future was gone. The two years following Joshua's death were filled with deep interior suffering for me. My marriage went through very difficult times. But life went on, and we had a beautiful new baby girl who was tested for Crabbe's disease and found to be healthy. She sang for you in the beginning. My husband was now in seminary, studying to become a pastor. It seemed that everything was turning around for us, but I could not shake the sorrow and the lingering questions about God's dealings or lack thereof in Joshua's life.
While in seminary, we began attending a church that taught the Reformed tradition of John Calvin. I wanted nothing more to do with the faith tradition that had failed my son. I now embraced a God who predestined everything. If God decreed it, it was good. If God predestined someone for hell, it would in some way show his glory. It was now up to me to embrace God's ways and grit my teeth through whatever he would choose to throw at me. Why I needed to do this, however, was lost to me. If I was predestined for heaven and my salvation was completely accomplished by Christ's work on the cross, why did I need to go through suffering? If at the moment of death, I was instantly and painlessly sanctified, why did I need any suffering at all in this life to grow in holiness? And if I was predestined for hell, then nothing I could do or no test of faith I could pass would change my eternal destination. But I found a strange, uncomfortable rest in believing that my total human depravity was the cause for my confusion and inability to understand. During our days in seminary, I attended a bereaved parents support group. I saw two groups of parents there. One group took the path of bitterness and anger at God for what had happened to their children. It seemed to me that they created a hopeless, despairing, and caustic atmosphere around themselves that I found suffocating. The other group of parents took the path of acceptance of what God had allowed. They were hopeful, at peace, and ready to help newly bereaved parents. I was fortunate enough to become friends with some of these amazing mothers, and the harvest of their faith was so life-giving that I was pulled out of the sorrow and the depression that comes after losing a child. I also realized that, although I could not find a way to understand why God allowed Joshua to suffer and die, I knew that God existed, that God was good, and that he loved me, he had not left me, and that without him, there really was nowhere else to turn. My faith was now a conviction of things not seen. And so when I found out that I was pregnant again five years after Joshua's death, my faith was not shaken, nor was my trust in God's goodness. I was ready to grit my teeth and fight through whatever God might have in store. I was better prepared for the suffering that was to come, but so far from understanding the gift that God was preparing. After doing some research, my husband found two successful attempts for treatment on newborns diagnosed with Krebe's disease. We had the baby tested in utero so that if the baby was affected with the disease, we could make plans for the bone marrow transplant as soon as possible after birth. When I was five months pregnant, we received word that this third child, our daughter Laura, did indeed have Krebe's disease. 
Our church rallied around us, and I'm not sure how we would have faced this without them. Because of the medical advances, we had hope that she could be treated and live a long, healthy life. The first newborn to be treated was two years old and doing very well. After Lord's birth and bone marrow transplant at the age of 19 days, we almost lost her several times. We spent many months in the hospital. There were and are ongoing complications from the treatment and the disease. My relationship with God was very different at this time. I accepted what our family was going through, and I looked at each day with Laura as just one more gift from God, not knowing if we would have the gift of her life on the following day. I still could not understand why we were given this. I wasn't angry anymore, but I didn't know what to do with the suffering that Laura was going through. Our suffering at seeing her suffering or the suffering that our older daughter, Olivia, was experiencing at the young age of five felt overwhelming. I was reminded of a story I had read by Corey Tenboom in her book titled The Hiding Place. Her family hid Jewish neighbors in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. She related the following story. Quote, and so seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is a sex sin? He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last he stood up, lifted his traveling case, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey, he said. I stood up and tugged at it, it was crammed with all the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. So I ask God to carry a suitcase for me. Inside the suitcase, I put all the suffering, the spiritual confusion, and my lingering doubts. These things were too heavy, too incomprehensible. And at that point, all I could do was to place the suitcase in his hands and leave it there until I could bear to think of its contents again. While we were going through all of this with Laura, my husband reached the final year of seminary, studying the Holy Scriptures and reading a lot of church history. He began to read the early church fathers. He began reading the writings of St. Thomas, Aquinas, and he took a philosophy class. And you might have an idea where I'm going next. <laughs> Cardinal Newman once said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So began our journey towards the Catholic Church. Our four years in seminary were and remain, in my memory, 
a significant time of growth and intellectual awakening. And our love for the Holy Scriptures grew as we studied and learned from the wonderful individuals that we met in and out of the classroom. But finally coming to the realization that he would no longer teach in the Reformed tradition or seek to pastor there, my husband graduated from seminary and went on to graduate school in philosophy at St. Louis University. His conversion story is for him to tell, but suffice it to say that after a few years of study, he was ready to become Catholic. He waited for me to enter the church with him. It took me a bit longer, and that is another story for another time. We spent a few years at a wonderful Anglican parish, growing in our love and appreciation for the beautiful liturgy. It was the next to last step in our winding, bumpy road of faith. On a glorious fall day, October 8, 2006, we were received into the Catholic Church at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis just 10 years ago this coming fall. I initially gave the Catholic Church serious consideration only out of a conviction to preserve the unity of my marriage. The problems that I thought were present in the Catholic Church turned out to be what I thought the Church taught, not what the Church actually teaches. My greatest misunderstandings were regarding Marian doctrine. Because of this, and because it is often difficult for a new convert to practice Marian devotions initially, like the rosary, I decided to choose Mary for my confirmation name, to face these lingering doubts head on, so to speak. I reasoned that if I could embrace Mary and the teachings about Mary, I could and would embrace all of the church's teachings. I remember telling my husband that I would become Catholic, but I would not let him talk me into getting a Mary statue for the front of our house. <laughs> but you know the saying, to never say never. <laughs> Mary, Mary now resides in her garden in the front of our house here in Cedar Rapids, and I was the one who asked for the statue for our 20th wedding anniversary. So Mary came into my life despite myself. When I began to pray the rosary and meditate on the life of Mary, I began to see my own life in a different way. I had said my yes to God when I was 14 years old at the altar call in the Southern Baptist Church. Was my yes like Mary's? If so, then I should be able to say with Mary, Lord, be it done unto me according to your will. Mary gave God her whole self, holding nothing back from him. But I realized that I had been holding something back from God for all of these years. The idea of what I thought my life should be like. So I began to pray that my yes to God would be like Mary's. And I asked Mary to intercede for me so that I could be more docile to God's will for my life and that I could find joy in the life that God had given me. 
Surely Mary knew my sorrow. She whose life was not what she had imagined. She who carried the knowledge of what would ultimately happen to her only son for over 30 years. She who watched his passion and his death. She who lived on as a bereaved mother. Mary led me gently into the devotional life of the church. And as I grew comfortable with Mary, I wanted to get to know other saints and started reading some of their writings. And as I did so, I felt that I had found my people. Their words spoke all the things that I wanted to say, and their prayers lifted my heart in prayer. Their lives gave me hope and peace. And they began to teach me about suffering. Our daughter, Laura, was just seven years old when we, as a family, were received into the church. It was clear by the time she was about four that the bone marrow transplant wasn't able to address the damage done by the disease to Laura's nervous system. There is ongoing research for Crabbe's disease to repair this damage, but currently there is no treatment. As she grew, these issues became more pronounced. At the age of two, she was walking. At the age of four, she was using a walker. At the age of five, she was in a manual wheelchair. And now, at 17, she's in a power wheelchair that only requires the use of her left hand. For much of Laura's young life, I kept the suffering in the suitcase, not yet ready to open it. I tried to be optimistic about her physical abilities. We spent countless hours at therapies, tried Botox, tried electrical stimulation, tried muscle release surgeries and casting. But as time went on, it was clear that her life was not going to be what we thought it was going to be. Her mind is sharp, but her body grows weaker each year. Caring for a person with physical disabilities is really hard and complicated. A caregiver often neglects herself and views her own struggles as a sign of weakness. And this adds guilt upon the already emotionally and physically demanding role of caregiver. Caregivers often experience illness themselves or injure their own bodies caring for those who need them. But in my experience, the most difficult part of caring for Laura has been the mental suffering of watching her suffer. And if I let down my guard for just a moment and allow my mind to go down the path of possible futures for Laura, I can make myself ill. And so entered Mary into my life and all the heavenly cohorts she summoned on my behalf. Mary brought that suitcase that had been tightly shut and stuffed on a shelf in the basement of my soul upstairs. She dusted off the cobwebs. Then the Blessed Mother sat down with me and told me that it was time to open the lid. Not to worry, she would hold my hand 
and study me. Upon opening the suitcase after I became Catholic, I was surprised to see what lay inside. In my memory, the contents were not only confusing, but horrifying. But what I now saw was very different. It was as if I found a beautiful robe of the finest cloth, so soft to the touch, the color of the sky. I took it out, and the Blessed Mother helped me as I struggled to put it on my shoulders. It was heavy, and it seemed to close off the world around me. I turned to look at Mary and was startled to notice that she too was wearing a robe of similar design. And I knew then that God was asking me to take on the suffering in the suitcase as my mantle. I would not be alone. He had given me Mary as a guide, but he was asking me to wear this garment of his making. And then St. Therese of Lisieux began to teach me the little way of love. I could offer any sorrow, any suffering, any difficulty as a loving sacrifice to God. St. Teresa of Avila taught me how to sit with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer. I learned how to join my own suffering with his I hoped to console his heart with my presence. St. Veronica found me in the Stations of the Cross and showed me how I could use my mantle to wipe the face of Jesus as she had used her veil. Because it was also Jesus in my daughter. It was Jesus in my now ailing mother. It was also Jesus in those around me who were suffering. And the least of my brethren, it was also Jesus. I could wipe the face of Christ like St. Veronica. St. Teresa Benedicta, whose feast day was yesterday, called out and said, one cannot desire freedom from the cross when one is especially chosen for the cross. And I heard the gentle words of St. Teresa of the Andes say, sufferings are transformed by faith. The important thing is not to concentrate on the external. We should examine the source from which things are born, and faith will make it known. It's God's love which tries, refines, and purifies our soul. When you're suffering, look at Jesus. He is loving you with tenderness because you are participating in his cross, in the cross he carried in his most divine heart from Bethlehem to Calvary. Place yourself and everything around you in the heart of Jesus. From the cross and with open arms, he invites us saying, come to me all you who are burdened under the weight of suffering and I will give you rest. And I heard Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta say, suffering has to come. Because if you look at the cross, he has got his head bending down. He wants to kiss you. And he has both hands open wide. He wants to embrace you. Then, when you feel miserable inside, look at the cross and you will know what is happening. Suffering, 
pain, sorrow, humiliation, feelings of loneliness, are nothing but the kiss of Jesus, a sign that you have come so close that he can kiss you. Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta also began to teach me through the story of her life. She saw the poor, the suffering, the abandoned, and the marginalized through the eyes of God. She would say of her work that she found Christ in the distressing disguise of the poor. She was able to see beyond what her human eyes could see. From the witness of her life, my own eyes began to see differently, and my view of suffering began to change as I looked at it, not as the world sees, but as God sees. Although the Blessed Mother and the saints were helping, I still, on occasion, tried to stuff my mantle back into the suitcase. It was too heavy. It made me uncomfortable. It got in the way of things that I wanted to do. But then the suitcase would show up demanding my attention. I would often find it in the confessional. It has been there waiting for me in Eucharistic adoration. I know what to do now when I see the suitcase. I open it, I pull out the robe, and I put it back on. So this transformation of my view of suffering began to change my relationship with my daughter, Laura. It changed the way I cared for her. It changed the way I viewed her disabilities. <laughs> Caring for Laura's daily needs can be challenging. We have a little joke between us that started with me suggesting that each time I do one of these tasks, I'm earning a little jewel that will show up in my heavenly crown. She teased me one day with the thought that my crown would be so heavy with jewels that I would not be able to lift it up and wear it. I told her that I would have no need to wear it in heaven, but instead I would lay it at the feet of Jesus as my offering to him, just as the wise men brought their gifts to the infant Jesus long ago. The tasks of daily life and caring for Laura became sources of joy and humor these tasks were concrete ways that I could not only love Laura, but also concrete ways in which I could offer myself to God. How strange it was that now, in wearing the mantle of suffering, I could truly thank him for his work on my behalf in preparing all of these little crosses for me. To the world, what seemed like a day full of burdens was now for me a day of blessed gifts from God. Pope Francis has said, people with disabilities are a gift for the family and an opportunity to grow in love, mutual aid, and unity. I think the word mutual is a word that is very significant in this statement. We aid those who need our help, but they in turn give aid to us if we allow ourselves to be open to the gift of their ministry. The world says that those with disabilities, who suffer, who are weak, are not leading productive lives and do not contribute to society. But I would argue that, for 
from an eternal perspective, they are doing the work most needed in the world as they suffer with Christ and they offer their suffering for the salvation of the world. Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta knew this value of redemptive suffering. The sick and suffering co-workers of the missionaries of charity pray and offer their sickness and daily suffering to God for one specific assigned sister of the missionaries of charity somewhere in the world. Blessed Mother Teresa called her own personal sick and suffering co-worker her other self because she believed that the co-worker was just as important to the work. She relied heavily on the prayers of her other self. Blessed Mother Teresa knew the power and efficacious nature of the prayers of those who unite their sufferings with the sufferings of Christ, because by those prayers, the glorious work of the cross flows out to our world. St. John Paul II once said, On his cross, the Son of God accomplished the redemption of the world. It is through this mystery that every cross placed on someone's shoulders acquires a dignity that is humanly inconceivable and becomes a sign of salvation for the person who carries it and also for others. I beg you to make use of the cross that has become part of each one of you for salvation. Because of the transformation that had taken place in my own heart and mind, I was now able to talk with Laura about her own suffering. As she grows up, the questions have become harder and more thoughtful. The mantle of suffering she wears in her life is much heavier than my own, and the jewels that she earns in her own crown are more precious and costly. While Laura was dealing with some health-related issues, my own mother's health was declining as well. I mentioned her briefly in the beginning of my talk, and I want to share her beautiful story with you now. When we became Catholic, my mother, although she was not practicing her faith, was very happy. She always said that she believed the Catholic Church was the church that Christ founded. She never went into detail about why she stopped practicing her faith, but she would not return because of instances of scandal that she had witnessed. Father Thomas Keller, a priest that was part of our entry into the church, talked with mom several times, but to no avail. She could not get past what individuals in the church had done. After my father's death in 2006, her health steadily declined. She was in considerable pain all the time, was bitter and angry with God for what had happened to her. In the spring of 2011, she had a massive heart attack and underwent bypass surgery at the age of 80. The night before her surgery, Father Keller came to the hospital and gave my mom the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. She was brought out of an induced coma a week after the surgery early on a Sunday morning. As mom woke up, I witnessed an extraordinary event. 
While still somewhat sluggish, she began calling out for the doctor to help her. Help me, doctor. Help me, doctor, she said over and over again. The nurse tried to calm her. I tried to calm her. She only got louder. And then it seemed that a change came over her. Her attention was turned from her physical pain to the deeper pain that had been in her soul for all of those years. Help me, God, became her cry. And then she prayed the Our Father repeatedly, but always stopping after thy will be done. She cried out, forgive me, God, and forgive me, Jesus, and then thy will be done. Over and over, in kind of a rhythmic pattern for an extended period of time. And then the cries turned into a joyful cry of thank you, God, and thank you, Jesus. She quieted down and tried to make the sign of the cross while she said, I want to go to God. I want to go to Jesus. I want to go to heaven. A joyful look came over her face as she stated, God forgives me. And then, before falling into a peaceful sleep, I distinctly heard my mom say the words, we have won her back. So at this point, I knew that something was going on, and I must admit, I felt a little uncomfortable about it. The words, we have won her back, seemed so strange. Was mom repeating something she was hearing? Who were the we in that statement? The angels? The saints? I called Father Keller, the priest who had visited my mom, and told him what was going on. He planned to come by later that afternoon. When Mama woke sometime later, she seemed better. Looking past my husband and me, she said, Carol, is that Sister Kay? We turned, but we saw no one in her room behind us. But she insisted a person was there, all in white, who looked just like Sister Kay. To clarify, Sister Kay was a Dominican nun who had died of cancer two years before and was the sister of one of my mom's good friends. So now I was wondering if the anesthesia was causing her to hallucinate, and perhaps all that had happened that morning was just a result of her coming out of the influence of the anesthesia. So when Father Keller came later that afternoon, my mom was very happy to see him. She kissed his hand and asked for a blessing. She said to him, I'm afraid. And father asked her, what are, what are you afraid of? And mom said, that I'm not loving Jesus enough. And father said, there's time for that, thanks to the doctors. Later that evening, my mom wanted me to help her remember the act of contrition. She wanted me to keep saying it. And she kept repeating, I dread the loss of heaven. Mom asked if Father was coming back, and I said that he could. Would she like to make a confession? Yes, was her quick reply. I had been praying for my mom's conversion since I had my own when I was 14 years old. For over 30 years, I had been asking God to 
soften my parents' hearts so that they could have a relationship with him. Back then, I would never thought that my prayers would be answered in this way, my mom's reconciliation with the Catholic Church. On Tuesday, March 22, 2011, we stood outside my mother's room of the intensive care unit and waited while Father Keller spent about 45 minutes helping my mom make a good confession. As the wall and door of the room were glass, we could see the back of Father standing beside Mom's bed. I cannot begin to describe the joy we felt, so we watched him lift his arm and slowly make the sign of the cross over my mom while giving her absolution. Her 40 years of wandering in the desert were finally over, and she was reconciled to God and Holy Mother Church. Father came back to see Mom a week later. When he came out of her hospital room, he said to us, well, I wasn't sure that it would stick, but it did. <laughs> Months later, my mom could remember nothing of the day except for the face of Sister Kay. She was only sure of that. The other result of the day was that all her bitterness and anger that the church were gone, and she couldn't understand how she had let the feelings of a few men keep her away from God and the church. When she would tell others of what happened to her, she would say, I always thought a deathbed conversion was a shameful one, but now I know that any conversion is a good conversion, and any time is a good time. For the next year and a half, my mom suffered tremendously. On top of the heart problems, she was a diabetic. She had polymyalgia. She had several serious wounds that would not heal. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. The breast cancer moved into her bones. She was finally diagnosed with lung cancer on top of everything else. While well, I had many years to learn the things I learned about suffering, Mom had little time. She knew that God was giving her this final chance to love him. She wanted to make up for all the years that she had wasted. We talked a lot about suffering together, and the saints consoled her with their words. Mom enjoyed reading the excerpts from St. Faustina's Diary of Divine Mercy. She found consolation in these beautiful words. Suffering is a great grace. Through suffering, the soul becomes like the Savior. In suffering, love becomes crystallized. The greater the suffering, the purer the love. My mom could clearly see the gift that God had given her at the end of her life, her suffering, brought her back to him. I once told mom that St. Teresa of Avila had said, Dear Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it is no wonder that you have so few. Mom thought that was funny. <laughs> but she still wanted to be God's friend. She remained his friend until her death in November of 2012, less than two years after the day she was reconciled to him. My mom lived courageously at the end of her life 
but I believe one act of faith 18 years before her death is intimately connected to her courageous end. One evening over 20 years ago in 1994, my mom stayed with our son Joshua while my husband and I went out. My mom knew that Joshua could die soon. She also knew that we, as Protestants then, had no plans to baptize our infant son. And so, while we were out, Mom took Joshua into the bathroom and baptized him in the bathroom sink in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as she poured water over his head. When she told us about this later, I was upset, but I thought, it really didn't count anyway, so no harm done. How wrong I was. It did count, and it eternally mattered for my son. The consolation that we now have as a result of my mom's act is immeasurable. And since the day he awoke in heaven, I am sure that Joshua has been interceding for our whole family and for the grandmother who brought him into the church through baptism in the bathroom sink. And this brings me back full circle again to my son Joshua. I have been asked how can I make sense of what God had allowed in Joshua's short life? How do I deal with what he went through? Why did God allow that? There is much I still do not understand. I think that Peter Kreeft says it well in his book, Making Sense of Suffering, when he says that it is better to talk of the mystery of suffering rather than the problem of suffering. The problem is to be solved. The mystery is to be continually understood more fully. But a mystery remains a mystery until we are before the one who knows all, that is, until we are with God himself. But I will attempt to articulate what has helped me regarding the mystery of suffering. In becoming Catholic, I learned that our thoughts, our words, what we do, and what we don't do have eternal consequences. I have learned that through sanctifying grace, God gives us the great dignity of not only sharing in his own life, but also participating with him in our own sanctification. Thus, in response to his grace at work in us, we are given the dignity as well as the great responsibility of determining our final end. I know that God loves us with an endless love and will go to the limit that our free will allows to offer us opportunities for sanctification. I know that he is trustworthy and perfectly good. In fact, he is goodness itself. I know that he desires our happiness and as happiness is obtaining some good in this life, we can only find an imperfect happiness because we can only find imperfect goods. Perfect happiness, then, is obtaining the perfect good, 
which is God himself. I also know that God is all-powerful and able to remove any suffering or difficulty we experience. So in the all-powerful, all-loving, perfectly good, trustworthy creator of the universe allows suffering in our lives, there's a very good reason. By it, he provides a way for us to reach our final end, perfect happiness. We had additional words inscribed on Joshua's headstone that read, in the arms of Jesus. I had considered this only as what it must be like for Joshua in heaven. But I now am convinced that Joshua was always in the arms of Jesus. In life, Joshua stayed in the arms of Jesus on the cross. His suffering was like the constant embrace of Christ. And now in death, Joshua remains in the arms of Jesus in the perfect happiness of heaven, now for all eternity. Our former pastor at the Cathedral Basilica in St. Louis, Monsignor Joseph Pins, once said in a homily, to the extent that we share in Christ's suffering, we will likewise share in his glory. So when I think of Joshua's life of suffering, I cannot even fathom the glory he now experiences. I cannot solve the problem of Joshua's suffering, but I can see deeper into the mystery of his suffering through the great treasury of our faith. It is indeed a faith so rich with treasures that we were to gather all the wealth all the power and all the glory of this world together, we could not even begin to match the value of its smallest portion. So in conclusion, I hope you can say with me tonight, thanks be to God for our faith. Thanks be to God for Holy Mother Church. And thanks be to God for the gift of suffering. <laughs>